Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, your very own, your very own, just yours, your very own creatively conscious mortality podcast. And what the heck is that? When someone asks what You're Going to Die, the podcast is, um, I guess it should be noted that we're listed in the health and fitness category in Apple. In Apple Podcasts. I don't know what the, I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know like what category made sense for something like so deathy and dead. Uh, there was no death and fitness category uh, in Apple Podcasts. So anyway, yeah, we're, we're in health and fitness. I mean, it's a version of it. It's a version of getting healthy about your mortality and getting fit. Just getting strapped and built muscly about <laughs> your eventual death. Um, but yeah, so what is this creatively conscious mortality thing? It is a place where we get creatively engaged with our dying, our death, and hopefully inspire some kind of deeper, richer life. And our guests can be anyone from a palliative care doctor to a musician, but whoever it is, they're creatively, at least according to my perspective, they're inspiringly creative as far as their death and dying engagement in the world, their engagement with mortality. And so that's what this podcast is holding and putting in your ear. One of my friends, a patient that I've worked with over the years has just gone on hospice. And um, yeah, I just kind of had them on my mind coming into the show and, and a lot lately. And a unique experience I had with them recently was just getting to have an open conversation about this dying business that they're going through. And that's uncommon. And I've, I've sat with hospice patients for over five years working on 10, and it's rare that people on hospice want to talk about what's happening and that they are dying. And that, that could be true just to the fact that I'm someone who comes and sits with them and maybe they don't want to talk to me about it. But I also think it's rare for people in the world, maybe even at that stage of life, to want to. And my mom was no exception. You know, I think I maybe made the mistake of not welcoming the chance I had where she once asked me if she was dying. And as it turned out, she got a lot better that year and didn't die for a year after asking me that question. Um, But I think back on that moment and wonder if I'd just been honest. Uh, You know, I I guess I wasn't, I don't know. I was 23, you know, what do you say? What do you, what do you, what do you do with a moment like that with your mom? But it became a missing for me 
being able to talk to her openly about what what hap- what was happening to her during the year that I lived with her the last year of her life and and by the time she got so sick that she started dying there wasn't much talking happening at all really so when I come and visit my friend recently who's gone on hospice and declared it we just got to talk openly about the dying and it reminded me of something when my mother-in-law died or was dying actually i remember walking around the corner from the house i'm in right now down a little street in the middle of san francisco and i remember having this feeling about her dying that felt familiar suddenly and it was light it was some kind of electric possibility I say electric, like the feeling of it, you know, it was a lot more feeling than anything else, but it felt like suddenly it dawned on me in that moment. It felt like waiting for a baby to be born. And it's not common for me to feel that. And it's not what I felt with my mom, but I felt that with my mother-in-law, the excitement, I think the electricity, the electric is that it's this kind of excitement of the possibility and And I think then the way we feel uncomfortable with death and dying is being uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. There's discomfort. There's a wall of of resistance and discomfort and awkwardness and not knowing how to put it into words or if everybody's okay with it. And I don't know that this is true for everybody listening, but I'm just speaking to what it feels like to me after all these years to be able to have the veil pulled back and the wall taken down, the wall of like, this is not gonna be talked about because of fill in the blank, so many reasons, and just have it be open and a connected listening and witnessing of someone actively dying and having them put the words to it and feel it be interesting and curious and not like, not that it doesn't have the sadness and the heartbreak and the the questions, so many, so many, so many questions, but that it has uh, it has the other stuff too, the the openness, the yeah, there's something I keep coming back to, like the connectivity of it. And uh, it reminded me of of our guest, actually, and the wondering I have. And I, and I kind of ask about it a bit. I kind of like get into it a little bit with our conversation about what it feels like and felt like to talk to this, this person about death in a way that I wasn't used to people being willing to do and feeling like surprised at how comfortable I was having that kind of conversation and, and like, like a feeling of home in that kind of conversation. But Frank uh, Ostaseski the guest for our episode here really has informed a lot of those moments for me reading his book, the five invitations and going to some of his talks and watching his videos. It's uh, it's one of those people that I feel really honored to, I guess in a way before I even get to talk to him, like honored to have something like that, like a person like that in the world to inform these end of life conversations and impermanence and fragility and vulnerability. And so now I'm doubly honored to be able to have a conversation with him like this and share it with you. 
Frank Osaseski is an internationally respected Buddhist teacher, and he's the visionary co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. And he's also the founder of the Meta Institute. The Meta Institute provides innovative educational programs and professional trainings that foster mindful and compassionate end-of-life care. Frank has lectured at Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, leading corporations like Google and Apple, and teaches at major spiritual centers around the globe. And he is the 2018 recipient of the prestigious Humanities Award from the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. So understand in a way, I think to give you a little context for listening to this, this interview, you know, Frank's not a doctor. He's not a nurse or a social worker. He came into this work in a way that I feel is familiar to me. And we talk a bit about that in this conversation, but it's curious to me. It's, it's almost like an invitation to have someone like Frank, who's not any of those professionals, but has built decades of a life working in the end of life sphere with hundreds, thousands of dying people. And I'll never forget the day I was running one of our open mics and I, I looked into the audience and he was sitting in the front row. I mean, that's a huge deal to be doing, you're going to die for the years I have and have someone like Frank Ostaseski come and just show up at one of your, one of your open mics. So I'm real happy to share this, this conversation with you. And the only other thing I should probably mention is just the health context for Frank, some of the health stuff he's gone through over the last few years. We talk a bit about that. I think it's made clear, but just so you know where the conversation heads, it runs a line through all the decades of his work. He's such a great storyteller, but it also brings in his personal experience. And it felt really significant to get to listen to him speak to this part of his life. So I hope this offers you a little something of what you need right now. This episode of you're going to die the podcast with Frank Ostaseski. You know, there's a lot of talk out there these days about the good death. And honestly, I'm a little allergic to the, to the term. Because mm. um, mm -hmm. I think dying's hard enough. I think it's really tough. <laughs> probably the toughest thing we'll ever do in our yeah. life without somebody else putting mm. their agenda on how I should die or um, how mm. I should be in my dying process. And so um, I think it leaves people often feeling like um, they're not doing it well or they've made a mistake in some way. I think what we need to focus on is how do we create systems that allow people to die however they need to die? And, and what's missing in those systems? Instead of putting all the weight on the person who's dying to die well, we ought to really think about how we manage, how the systems are, um, are available to support people through their dying process. And they're not so good, honestly, right, right now. They're, they're kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like the, the pandemic's proven 
uh, that maybe more than ever. Sure. And and one of the things that's happened in the pandemic, of course, is that there are unintended consequences. You know, when we were trying to safeguard people by not having strangers come into hospitals or hospice residences, for example, the unintended consequences, of course, are that people wound up dying absent of the people that they love most, absent of their family members or their mm-hmm. dear friends. And so nurses and doctors were having to play dual roles. You know, they were... Um, having to do the caregiving and, and, and skillful care that they do as clinicians, but also be that substitute, rather, for that family member. And they weren't prepared to do that, you know? It was a lot to put on them as well. And many of them are experiencing a tremendous amount of moral distress because of the situations that they've been put in that they were not prepared for. Yeah. During this time, are you um, finding some of your work is making space for those professionals? Have you run any workshops or any given any talks for that particular community? Sure. And of course, all these things are being done online now. So I'm doing Zoom calls with right. communities, clinicians all over the world. Um, and, you know, I remember speaking to a group of clinicians in New York who were part of an ER in a major hospital. And, you know, they were just overwhelmed that. And not necessarily just because of the amount of death that they were experiencing, but because they didn't have a way of metabolizing, if you will, or integrating what they'd seen, what they'd been bearing witness to. You know, and I had to say to them, you know, you guys are not normal. (laughs) You know, what you're doing is not normal. And the normal ways that you have of trying to um, integrate what what you've been bearing witness to aren't going to work for you. Going home and having a glass of wine and watching a television show simply isn't going to be sufficient. Mm. But, you know, they also don't have a whole lot of time to do something else, you know. So, to tell them to sit meditation for 20 minutes or, you know, do yoga or something like this, that's not going to happen for them. So, um, Mm. you know, we just had them start talking with each other. Um, They were the best supports for each other. And, uh, And listening in a devout way. And when we listen that way... We sort of bring out the truth in the other person. And that's turned out to be the most useful um, practice for folks is just getting them to talk to one another. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, this reminds me of something I wrote down because as I was looking through your book again and just thinking about this conversation, I I came upon the the story about your your work in Auschwitz and um, that story about the the talk you gave mm. afterwards about forgiveness. I'm wondering if you could tell that story and maybe tie that in a little bit without probably much effort, yeah. but to this fact of like, oh, being together, like having people arrive with each other so they are seen and understood through that shared experience, like that's medicine. But I'd love to hear that story if you want to share it. Well, many years ago now, I helped to lead a retreat at Auschwitz and Birkenau uh, with a wonderful Zen teacher, uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, who, who created the program. And um, we, you know, we sat on the tracks in Birkenau uh, where thousands of people suffered horrible care and um, died even worse deaths. And uh, we would stay in this local sort of mm, dormitory very close by. And in the mornings, we'd have circles, and I would facilitate a circle. And in my circle were people from all over the world, Germans, Jews, uh, people from all over the world. And um, also in my circle was a woman now older who had been a child in the camps in Auschwitz and Birkenau. 
And so one night uh, we had access to the camps, and so I went back into Birkenau at night, and I I went into one of the barns. They were actually horse barns where everyone lived in those uh, during those years, horrible places. And I came into the darkness and sat in the darkness, and then realized that there was someone on the other end of the horse barn. This horse barn that was, you know, twenty five yards long, and. I heard this sound, Ned, that I've never heard before, some kind of wailing, some almost inhuman sound, suffering like I've never heard. And at the other end of the barn was this woman who had been a child in the camps. In fact, mm-hmm. she had lived in this particular horse barn. And so I sat beside her, and there weren't any words that can, uh, mm. that can touch that kind of pain. All we can do is sit and bear witness, stay present, especially when the going gets rough. And we passed the night, and when dawn came, we got up and went back to our dormitories where we were staying. And I left for Germany, where I was going to teach a series of workshops on forgiveness and grief that I had planned long before I had agreed to go to Auschwitz and Birkenau. And while I was teaching this workshop, which went on for three days, several hundred people in the room, I didn't make any mention of my time in Auschwitz or Birkenau, because it's still hard to talk about it in Germany. And just as I was about to close the program, saying my goodbyes, this woman raised her hand in the back of the room, and I thought, no, it's maybe too late. I thought, okay, one more. And she stood up and she said, Frank, I've been listening to what you say about forgiveness and I can't forgive. My father was a prisoner in the camps and he died in those camps and I can't forgive. Mm. And again, there was silence because no words can touch this pain. And then another hand went up in the room and I thought, okay, here come the stories. Now it could be the stories of the people who were prisoners in the camps because now it was kind of in the field, so to speak, even though I hadn't mentioned it. And this woman stood up and she said, my heart is also closed, it's like ice. She said, I can't forgive. My father was a guard in the camps and I know that he killed people and I can't forgive. And again, I had to bear witness in silence. The whole room did. And then these two women, they were so brave, so courageous. They did the most amazing thing. They walked up toward me. I wasn't sure what they would do. And then they crossed across the room toward each other. And then they just held each other. And it was the most remarkable um, demonstration of compassion that I've ever witnessed. Your suffering is my suffering. So yeah, sometimes we find ourselves in each other. We discover ourselves in each other. I think this is really important when we're being with people who are dying, to see ourselves in them and to see them in us. And that fundamentally shifts the way in which we give care. You know, in, in healthcare, we've been, we guard against this. We've been trained not to do that because you know, we're afraid we'll get overwhelmed or we'll get too involved. But I think it's really important that when we see a patient, we also see our mother in them, not in some unhealthy projection, but that we see, a, see them as a real human being, someone who reminds us of what it's like to love, what it's like to give care. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, 
when we do this, when we see ourselves yeah. in each other, everything changes. Everything changes. And, and maybe that's part of what's happening in the pandemic now. We're beginning to see ourselves in each other. Yeah. I mean, it seems so particularly important in that, that there isn't a fixing happening and, and that that both applies to dying and to grief uh, and heartbreak and sorrow. Uh, that there's there's a way of being with the thing, not trying to change the thing, and so then seeing it for what it is and and holding it um, as a, a reflection of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, this is especially true with grief. You know, it's just not to be fixed. It's not something that we have to put away or get over. Mm. It's something we have to live into. We have to move through. And advice doesn't help here. You know, when we're grieving, in a way we have access to a deeper dimension of ourself than we have at almost any other time in our life. And so it can be a time of great transformation. It starts out, we start out feeling fragmented and broken and, and um, lost and isolated. But as we attend to our grief, as we really pay attention, then a transformation is possible. When we begin to see this experience through the, the journey, if you will, of grief becomes a path to wholeness that we might not have known. Yeah, you, you say in your book, uh, in surrendering to our grief, we have learned to give ourselves to life like a portal. Yeah. You know, I, I think our work, if we're, if we're the caregiver, if we're the clinician, is to be a portal, you know, not to be a problem solver. Mm. Um, when we're busy fixing people and solving all their problems, they begin to see themselves as a problem and mm. they begin to lose contact with their own ability to contribute to their own healing. You know, Jung, the great psychologist, said in every physician there is a patient needing to be healed, and in every patient, there is a physician who can contribute to his or her healing. And I think that's awfully important to remember, both for ourselves and others. You know, you, you mentioned my heart attack so, a while back, and uh, during that experience, I felt very helpless. Um, even though I'd had all this training and been with so many people who were dying, me, myself, I felt helpless. And people would come in and try and fix me or, you know, solve problems. And I just began to shrink into mm. the bed, you know, and, and began to lose myself. I remember this one afternoon, I, uh, I was like a teenager, you know, I put on a headsets, you know, and put on some music because I didn't want to hear anybody anymore. Um, I was listening to the Five Blind Boys of Alabama, a wonderful spiritual group that I really like a lot. And, and they have a deep faith in God. And I felt like I'd lost all my faith. And so I kind of borrowed their faith through their music for a little while. And I'd walk the halls listening to their music. And it was really helpful. I remember coming back to my room and going into the bathroom and, and just finally weeping, you know. And some nurse came along and knocked on the bathroom door and said, are you okay in there? I said, yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. And they said, but you're crying. I said, yes, I've been, I've been <laughs> yeah, waiting for these tears to come for days. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, she said, shall I get a social worker? Shall I get a chaplain? Mm -hmm. I said, no, 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 no need for any of that. I've been waiting mm -hmm. for these tears for a long time. 
Because you see, I trust, I really trust that when my pain shows up, really shows up, and I'm willing to be with it, um, my compassion also shows up. And it provides for me the guidance that I need to work with the suffering that I'm in the midst of. And, um, but when we're busy fixing and helping people, we don't see that. You know, my, my friend Rachel Remen makes a great distinction. She distinguishes um, helping, fixing, and serving. You know, when we help, we come from a position of power. And it inevitably causes the other person to feel powerless or helpless. And when we fix, we treat people as if they were <laughs> plumbing. I mean, it's right. okay to fix pipes, but not so good to fix people. And so it leaves people feeling broken, actually. But when we serve, we're really serving the wholeness in the other person, and we're coming from the wholeness in us. And in a way, we're kind of a servant of that wholeness. So when we, when we help, we leave people feeling weak. When we fix, we leave people feeling broken. But when we serve, really serve, we leave people feeling whole. And... Um, Oh, I wish we could mm -hmm. teach that yeah, more in med yeah. schools and nursing schools. I love schools. that. I was going to ask you, like, yeah. who came to you after the heart attack and helped that shift? And I love that it was the Blind Boys of Alabama, and I do love their music. And I, I just can't help but make the connection between their faith and the faith, and correct me if this isn't uh, the, like, wording that fits, but this idea that you have faith in also what, is wrong you know that there's not it's not about like faith in the thing getting figured out and you'll be okay there's also a faith in like you said the pain that came to visit you that there's faith needed for it well uh, another way we could say it is that when we turn toward what hurts when we turn toward the pain we come to know the pain and we aren't so busy trying to get rid of it mm -hmm. you know we come to know it and it teaches us it shows us something about ourselves and about pain itself and the nature of suffering and when we give our pain that kind of attention as i say it's inevitable inevitable mm -hmm. that our innate compassion will show up as a kind of guidance and compassion you know it it's not trying to get rid of things it's really trying to embrace things it, it often begins with some empathetic connection, you know, to ourself or to others. When we feel into the experience and we feel some sense of mm, connection, some, some way of recognizing ourself and the other. Mm -hmm. And this often is a gateway to compassion. But it's also a, a place that people get lost. Sometimes we get empathetically overloaded. Yeah. It's not enough just to feel into the pain of the others. We have to know how to stay in our own seat. We have to know how to maintain our own uh, strength and boundaries. Otherwise, we're going to get lost. Then we're just two depressed people down a well without right. a ladder. You know? What do you say to somebody? Like, so, how do you do that? Well, yes, it's important to feel. And again, empathy can be a kind of gateway. But we have to be really careful there. Because what happens out of that empathetic overload is that we get distressed. And then we want to do something to the other person to alleviate our distress. Doctors give more medications. Nurses, you know, 
do more procedures. Um, compassion wants to relieve suffering. It's an action. It's an action that um, wants very much to reduce or relieve the suffering that's present. Not for me, but for the other. So compassion is other-centered. Personal distress is mm-hmm. me-centered. Yeah? And often they get confused. And the, where, the, where the confusion starts is usually with the experience of empathy, where we, where we aren't tracking our own needs while we're being with the other person. Yeah, I think you say in your book at some point, um, just this idea of like having a flow, having this this holding and being empathic, like letting it move through you, not get stuck anywhere or, you know, settle in and end up being, like you said, the person-centered experience would occur at that point because you'd be, you'd have that stuff right in you, stuck in you. Yeah, it's not our pain, right. you know, it's the other person's pain and and it's a ludicrous idea to say, I feel your pain. No, we don't. We feel our own pain and it allows us to build an empathetic bridge to the mm-hmm. other person. Mm-hmm. So really our work is to let the pain move through us. And um, in order to do that, we've got to be in contact with our own vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is one of the most exquisite of human capacities, the capacity to be vulnerable. I know in my own life, um, whether it was in the heart attacks or my experience with the strokes or seizures, I have to say that vulnerability was my greatest asset. And what I mean by that is that it allows the beauty and the horror of the world or of our own experience to impress itself on our souls, on our hearts, in our bones, really. Mm -hmm. Um, When I'm vulnerable, with other people, um, I'm open to them. You know, mostly we think of vulnerability as susceptibility of being harmed. But I think it's something different. I think it's closer to permeability. I think it's about when we let something really affect us. And there's a kind of courage that's required mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. You know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a warrior courage. It's the courage to allow the experiences of life to impress themselves on us, to open ourselves to the pain, to the suffering, to all the emotional states that come with accompanying somebody in such you know difficult times. So I, I think it requires a great deal of courage. And um, I'm grateful to have been introduced to it and to know it well. Now a few words about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The Lost Church. The Lost Church is not just some random organization that happened to find out about our podcast and offered a sponsorship. Actually, they're friends of You're Going to Dies. And if you've listened to some of the last few episodes that have been sponsored by The Lost Church, you've heard some of the story about how one day I walked into a space and needed a place to do the open mic, the heart of You're Going to Die, and The Lost Church was the spot. 
and we were doing shows there the last few years leading up to the pandemic and we'll continue to do shows in their spaces and i do mean their spaces the lost church isn't just one venue it's growing numbers of venues to hold space for anywhere from 49 to 100 people in an audience, which is a unique kind of venue for a unique kind of artist. And we have a lot more of those kinds of artists than artists that can fill spaces that have 500 plus audience seating. So the goal of The Lost Church is to create a network of performance parlors that can host and nurture local and touring artists in a way that the larger spaces never can. And there are already established business models to keep the larger spaces alive. So what the Lost Church has created is a way to help smaller venues get set up and then exist in community and get booked and filled up with artists in the community. Their dream is to build a strong nonprofit arts organization that handles the running of those spaces, the leasing, the booking, and the promoting, and allow local members of the community to run and curate the individual nights. They open new neighborhood spaces for live performance, whether it's in the back of a restaurant, a portable mini circus tent, or signing long-term leases. They need spaces. That's how it's going to grow, and that's the main point of the offering. And they sustain the artist community by keeping performance spaces alive, instituting simple and fresh sustainable business practices. That includes proper permitting, management, and promotion. And they defend the spaces, supporting small performance spaces under fire, whether it's by installing sustainable business practices, supplying legal and financial support, or helping with crisis management. So a couple things to keep in mind. The pandemic has hurt venues in general. And if you're an artist, especially a performance artist, you know this, and everybody does. The pandemic has hurt businesses in general, but the venues have taken a real hit, and the entertainment industry, for that matter. And so tapping into an organization like the Lost Church during a time like this is is really important step, I think, to supporting, really, you're going to die. I mean, you're going to die is built on events and uh, finding spaces that are intimate for community gathering. And uh, we do big concerts, but we do a lot more smaller community listening spaces with music and poetry and spoken word and storytelling and community witnessing. Supporting the Lost Church is supporting you're going to die. So right now, go to thelostchurch.com, get on their email sign up. It's right at the top of the website. Check out all their missions, check out all the information about what they're up to, and worth noting that they're looking to find a new space in San Francisco right now. So you can find a note from Brett Klein about that on the website describing what they're looking for and why. But uh, keep your ears to the ground for their other space in Santa Rosa, Big news coming probably soon. Thanks to the Lost Church for what you do in the world. So glad to be connected to you. And everybody listening, check out the Lost Church at thelostchurch.com. So before we get back to my conversation with Frank Ostaseski, we want to give you a little mid-show moment to get drawn in by the sirens. The sirens, a.k.a. Chelsea Coleman, 
the CFO and so much more of You're Going to Die. One of my favorite voices I've ever heard. You know, one day I was sitting in my office and the phone rang and um, a man on the other end of the phone said to me, I understand that you can help us keep our son at home after he dies. It was an unusual request. And I said, yes, I can. I can help you with that. I said, all you need to do is call me when it happens and then I'll come and help you. And he said, no, you don't understand. He died a half an hour ago. So I said, okay, I'll be right there. Now, I, I didn't know this family. I'd never been to their home, but I, I drove to their home. And when I arrived, everybody was in the room with the boy, parents, a couple of friends, some family members. And following my intuition, which I really trust, I, I came into the room and I went over to the boy and I just kissed him on the forehead. And when I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while they had cared for him with great love, you know, nobody had touched him since he died. And so these parents and I, we, we spoke about this ritual of bathing the body, which has been done across cultures for millennium, you know. And um, they wanted to do it. So they, they were great gardeners, I remember. And they, so they went out to the garden and they collected sweet herbs and sage and rosemary and flower petals. And they came back in and made a beautiful basin of water with all these herbs and flowers in it. And then without any advice, you know, without my instructing them on how to do it, this mom just started to bathe him like she had when he was an even smaller child, an infant. And she started, I remember, at the back of his head, and she washed down his back. It took a long time. And whenever she'd come to a scratch or a nick, 
she just took care of it with so much love, you know, so much care. For the dad, it was almost too much, you know, he couldn't do it. He had to go and look out the window to the garden. Yeah. And that was okay. We made room for that. And I remember this mom, she, she got to this boy's toes and she counted them. She said she'd done that when he was born. And she washed up the front of his body and, oh, it took such a long time and it was hard. It's hard to bear witness to that kind of suffering. And I remember this mother, she looked at me with these beseeching eyes, saying, without a word, saying, am I going to survive this? Can any mother survive this? Can any parent survive this? What am I going to do? This seems impossible. And my job was to hand her another washcloth, to turn her back toward her son, because that's where the healing's always found, in the midst of the suffering. And so she bathed up the front of his body. And when she got to his face, Ned, oh, it was so tender between them. You know, there was nothing separating them at that moment. She'd burned through grief. You know, I don't mean that her grief was over, but she it wasn't what was most present for her right then. What was most present was love. And she cradled this boy's face in such a way that it reminded me of the way a mother might hold an infant when they're born. And it was like that in a way because there was no separation between the two of them. You know, when you're born, your mother's the first face of God. And the child doesn't experience themselves as different than the mother or separate from the mother. They're one being. And it was like that in this moment. Mm. Mm. It was a hot fire. I didn't know what to do. And all I could do was stay present, stay vulnerable, allow a kind of inner guidance to keep showing me what to do next. And I remember we dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas and um, we led his brothers and sisters into the room and I asked them what did he like to do most and they said that he liked to build model airplanes and they needed something to do also. So I said, okay, let's make a mobile out of those model airplanes and we did and uh, so that everybody could be involved. It was such a hot fire. Mm -hmm. But you know, what was really hard for me was going home that night because my son was seven years old at the time and mm -hmm. I can tell you I really held him close, you know. Mm -hmm. So how do we keep our hearts open in that kind of hell, you know? How do we stay in the room when the going gets rough? I don't think there's a technique for that that we can learn, you know, by reading a book. I think it's just how we meet each other, human to human. That's how I try to enter the room as a human being, not as some death and dying expert. You know, Ned, I have a lot of tools I, I've developed over the years. I got a whole toolbox, big yellow toolbox of tools, you know, <laughs> things I can do. And uh, I'm grateful to have them. But I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity. And then when I need a tool, I can reach for it. It's there in my back yeah. pocket and I can bring it out and make a skillful intervention. But what's most important is to lead with our humanity, to be real with people. And that's what I tried to do with that mother and father and that little boy who, who had just died. 
In a way, death is the most human experience. And it causes us to discover the deepest parts of our humanity. We find ourselves in each other. And um, we become absolutely, fully, completely compassionate human beings. That's, that's what dying can show us. It can light up for us our own innate wisdom and compassion. You know, in, in my tradition, the Buddhist tradition, wisdom and compassion are thought of as two wings of the same bird. You know, wisdom without any compassion, it gets kind of heady and intellectual and conceptual. Yeah, the, the attempts at wisdom, I should say. And the attempts at compassion without any wisdom, well, they get kind of sentimental and, and um, mushy. <laughs> and so, so we need both. We need our compassion to be informed by wisdom, by a deep understanding. And we need our wisdom to be tempered by compassion, by, by the strength of the heart. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for the good cry. <laughs> I was over here just needing to cover my face during that story because I just didn't want to be snotty sobbing in the in, in the audio. Um, that was really lovely. Oh, I think it's really good, actually. You know, I <laughs> yeah, think we have right. too many tissues in this country. I think we need to just use our yes. shirt sleeves a little bit more, you know, and and mm. and and not try and stop it, you know. Oftentimes when we, you know, we're in some situation where right. somebody starts to cry, we immediately reach for a tissue. <sighs> and in a way, we send the message, stop crying. You know, stop Frank, crying. It's I, making me too uncomfortable. I'm realizing now that you taught me that. You know, I've been doing these workshops, <laughs> these grief workshops for years now. And I find myself saying, you know, when people give you a tissue, it's kind of like they're handing you a tiny towel to like clean up yourself. And I think I'd forgotten that I got that somehow from one of your talks or your book. <laughs> That's so great to get reminded of, of the source of that. Yes, I love it. That's great. And I cried just now and I didn't try to stop. I just made sure that it wasn't too loud to cover up your wonderful storytelling. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes our, thanks, our tears, you know, they, they water a heart that's been too dry, you know, and mm -hmm. we need it. And, and the shaking that comes with crying, you know, I always feel like it shakes loose the calcification, which has grown up around our hearts from trying to armor ourselves from the pain of the world. Mm. I love that. So I, I think these are extremely human wonderfully useful uh, experiences to cry, you know, to let ourselves mm. have it. You know, grief is, mm. it's, an, it's an activity of the soul, you know, and this nonsense that time heals, it's just ridiculous. Time doesn't heal. Time and attention may contribute to healing or, or careful attention, but, you know, I, I often find in, in the experience of grief, maybe you found it in your work, that well-meaning people, when someone is grieving, for example, the loss of someone they love, they start giving them a map about the territory. This is, these are the five mm -hmm. stages of grief. This is how you're going to move through it. And, you know, they're well-meaning, but in a sense, it's just their fear talking. You know, can we just hang out with people in the uncertainty of grief and not knowing how it's going to resolve and let all the faces of grief show itself? You know, it's not just sadness, grief. It's, it's, 
anger and fear and shame and blame. Those are all faces of grief and relief. You know, when someone we love that we've been caring for for a long time dies, we feel relief. And then we feel regret about the relief or guilty about the relief. But relief is a face of grief. And so is numbness, you know? This feeling like we're walking through molasses. That's a face of grief. And and on the journey through grief, our work is, is to meet all those faces, to allow them to show themselves to us, to teach us, to to um, tenderize us in a way. And um, yeah, I think the journey through grief is, is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Trustworthy, that's the right word for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I just mean the invitations themselves. Yes. So a while back, um, I, we developed sort of guidelines for how to take care of people who are dying. And we codified them into something I call the five invitations. And one of those invitations really important to include, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to do that. And it's find a place of rest in the middle of things. Hmm. You know, when we're a caregiver, when we're a clinician, we work hard, we work really hard. It's tough work taking care of people who are dying. So we have to learn to find a place of rest right in the middle of what we're doing because we can't always step away. We can't always go for a walk or take a holiday. I remember there was this woman at the house at the Zen Hospice. Her name was Adele. And she was this rough, tough Russian Jewish lady, I think about 86 years old. And I really loved her. You know, she was cranky and and uh, <laughs> just my kind of person. <laughs> And the night she was dying, um, they called me, and I would often go in when someone was dying. And I walked into the room, and there was Adele sitting up in her bed with her feet sort of dangling off the bed, on the side of the bed, and dressed in her nightdress. And it was a very wonderful nurse's assistant sitting next to her. And so I just went and sat in the corner on the couch. That's my way. I I sit down Mm -hmm. and watch and observe before I jump in to help, you know, is anything really needed for me? And sitting there on the couch, I, I watched and I saw that Adele was breathing with great difficulty, every in-breath a struggle, every out-breath a struggle, and this despite all the correct interventions. There's a labor to dying, just like there's a labor to getting born. Mm-hmm. And so I watched, and this very well-meaning attendant um, said to her, you know, Adele, you don't have to be frightened we're right here with you. And then Dell shot back, honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be frightened. <laughs> so I stayed in the corner, you know, <laughs> and I watched. And a little while later, this very kind attendant uh, said to Adele, you look a little cold. Would you like a blanket around your shoulders? And Adele, this fierce lady shot back, of course I'm cold, I'm almost dead. <laughs> And I thought, wow, I, I hope I have half of the tenacity of this woman when I'm dying, you know? <laughs> and so while, while I was watching, and maybe as you're listening to the story, I noticed two things. The first was that Adele didn't want any nonsense. She wanted, she didn't want to talk about tunnels of light or bardos or any of these other things. She just wanted somebody to be real with her. She wanted authentic relationship. And then the second thing that was evident was that she was struggling. 
you know, struggling with the breath, despite all the correct in, uh, interventions. So I pulled my chair up very close to her, and I, uh, we knew each other for some, some months, so I could be very honest with her. And I sat, from her and I sat across from her, and I said, Adele, would you like to struggle a little less? And she said, yes! And I said, okay, I noticed something there. Right at the end of your exhale, just before the next inhale, there was a kind of gap, you know, a, a pause. And I, I wonder if you could put your attention there for just a few moments. Now, remember, Adele doesn't care beans about meditation or Buddhism or any of these things, mm -hmm. but she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. So we tried it. I said, come on, just try it with me. And so as she would breathe in, I would breathe in. As she would breathe out, I would breathe out. We just did this for a while until our breaths really harmonized. Her erratic breath I harmonized with. I didn't try and change her breath. I didn't try and guide her towards some experience. I just accompanied her. After a while, you could see that Adele found this place, this gap between the exhale and the inhale. This little pause that's there. And as she did, this, the fear which had been characterizing her face just seemed to melt away, drain away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then she said, I think I'm going to lie back on the pillow and rest now, more frank. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And a little while later, she died quite peacefully. Mm -hmm. You see, I think Adele found a place of rest in the middle of things. All the conditions were still going on. She was still dying. There was still an erratic breathing pattern. Um, she was still cold. She was still Adele. All those things were still there. But she found a place of resting right in the middle of them. We're always busy trying to change the conditions, adjusting everything to try and make it all better. And it's, not, it's fine if you can do that, but dying isn't a condition you could just fix. How do we find a place of rest in the middle of things? Adele found it at the end of the exhale. What do you find there? You know, do you want to micromanage the breath? Do you trust the next breath will come on its own? <laughs> mm -hmm. Where do you find rest in the middle of things? Right in the middle of your life. And I think that's a good practice for us, for us to engage in now um, so that we train ourselves toward that. So it shows up in our process of dying or when we have a stroke or a heart attack or when we find ourselves confronted with a life-threatening diagnosis. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. That's important. You know, as I told you, I've been doing this hosp these hospice visits for, for over five years and it's volunteer visits um, through Hospice by the Bay. And so, like I told you, there's a lot of like sitting and being with the patient and doing life review. I mean, I've showed up and done gardening and made brownies, you know, whatever it is. But there's a recent experience I've had with a patient who is just very openly talking about dying. And I think a revelation I had, if I can call it that's something that significant, what it gave me was sight through the fear and the anxiety to maybe something more pure that is dying. Like we're not going to deny that it's hard and that there's suffering, but that there's a way our mental sort of framing or defining of death and dying has us a wall away from the actual thing itself. Does that 
resonate with you and your work over all these years? It felt like a freeing moment. It's like, I, why I keep coming back to it? It felt like freedom to have her say, I just, I'm curious about this and I have these questions about my dying and I want to do it. Uh, I want to do things. Uh, and she's not saying like, I want a good death, but there's that. It's just this opening to the occurrence um, that's not stopped by fear or uncertainty or anxiety or whatever it is. And she get, she's gifting me that in a way. That's what it feels like, this pure access to that natural eventuality. Yeah, beautiful. Fortunate for you that you had, she gave <laughs> yeah. you that gift. You know, for I think sure. when we regard care of the dying as just making the best of a bad situation, which is frankly how we deal with it in this country and in many healthcare settings, including many hospice settings, by the way. I think when we do that, when we think it, we just get through it, we devalue dying. We rob it of its sacred significance. And absent of a, absent of a more meaningful conversation, I think too many people are dying in fear and distress. And I, I think we, should, we can do something about that. Hmm. I, I'm going to share a story that I haven't spoken publicly about. And that is um, that I recently suffered a series of seizures. And I was sitting at my desk, and suddenly the impermanence of everything became evident. Everything was pixelated, the walls, the bed, everything. And I thought perhaps I might be having another stroke. So I called my dear bride, my wife, and she was uh, just about five minutes away, and she said, I'll be right there. And she came home, and she said, I think we should call 911. I said, yeah, I think so. That's a good idea. And uh, she said, okay, the ambulance will be here shortly and they'll come with a stretcher to take you from our house to the ambulance. And I live on a houseboat on a long dock. It's about a four minute walk to the, to the uh, parking lot. So I said, no, I wanna walk, I wanna feel my feet. And I wasn't so, why, why I was so sure about that, but I was, and she thought I was just being stubborn. But anyway, as I walked down the dock, this incredible experience of being filled with love happened. I mean, every cell in my body filled with love, Ned. Every cell, Ned. And it wasn't some romantic idea. It was a supportive kind of love. Like I saw love I could lean back into and it would really support me. And I thought I might be dying in this moment. And I had this other experience, which sounds a little California, but it's true, so I'll share it. I had this visceral <laughs> experience of these giant angel wings on my back. <laughs> They weren't actually there, but I felt they were there. And again, I could lean back into them. And I felt love as a supportive quality. And then as I walked down the dock a little further, the quality of the love started to change, started to shift. And instead of being supportive, it had the quality of being dissolving. And mm. this love started to dissolve everything. My state of mind, my sense of self, my identity, all boundaries all notions of separation began to dissolve. And I said to my wife, I have to stop for a minute. And I looked over the railing toward the water. And then everything dissolved into a kind of extraordinary, absolute absence. Absolute meaning it was complete, but not just that. It was like it. I, I saw something about reality that I hadn't seen before. Mm. Uh, we, we often think of the fullness of reality, but also there's the absence of reality, you know, the absence of our basic nature, the truth of that, 
that our nature is has a has a empty quality to it as well as a full quality. And experiencing this was deeply reassuring to me. And I thought I might be dying. But I didn't die. We kept walking. And we got to the ambulance. And just as we got to the ambulance, I had a grand mal seizure. Mm. You know, my body got rigid, started to shake. My mouth started foaming. It must have been terrifying for my, for my wife. And I collapsed. And I actually collapsed into the arms of a paramedic. And he brought me to, uh, put me in the ambulance, and they gave me some anti-seizure medication. They brought me to the hospital. And in the ER, my wife was going through my end-of-life wishes, my medical uh, healthcare directive. And I was, I was at this point completely out. You know, when I got into the, when I had the seizure, it was different than this feeling of absence I was describing a moment ago. It was total lights out. And I stayed in that state of lights out until we came into the ER. And I heard the doctor speaking to my wife. And I, I don't recall exactly what he said. My wife explained it to me later. But they were discussing my healthcare directives. And he said, okay, so no ventilation, no this, no that, but no CPR? He said to me like that. And I, I remember I came out of this deep well of darkness and I raised my hand and I said, no CPR, like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me to a CAT scan, give me another uh, CAT scan or MRI, I forgot now. And in that machine, I had another seizure. Mm. And so they decided they would admit me to the hospital. And they brought me upstairs. And my wife couldn't come because it was COVID and she didn't know if she'd ever see me again. Yeah. And they put me in a bed and they left me there. And then I experienced something I've never experienced before, Ned. It was paranoia. Now, I've been with many people who are paranoid, particularly at the end of their lives, and I've sat with them, comforted them, been of some support to them, but I've never experienced it myself. It wasn't fear. It was a completely deluded state. But I was aware that I was paranoid. Awareness was there also. I was aware that I was paranoid. I was aware of what I was paranoid about. I thought I was in a homeless shelter. I, I had all kinds of delusions. Mm. And this paranoia lasted for about 48 hours. And then it finally started to subside. And what helped me during that 48 hours was not my meditation practice. I couldn't work with it. I couldn't find some way of balancing my mind or regulating my emotional state. So all I kept doing was repeating to myself, right now, it's like this. Right now, it's like this. And it kept me safe when my mind wanted to torture me with the idea that this was the end or that this experience I was having would never end. So I kept repeating, right now, it's like this. Right now, it's like this. Now, these experiences were really, are really important to me mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to happen in the moment of our dying. We don't know if it'll be angel wings or paranoia. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But I have confidence in awareness. It has shown up for me every single time. And awareness here being the capacity to lovingly be with whatever's occurring, even when what's occurring is terrifying or, or beyond our comprehension. So this has given me even a deeper faith that sustains me when I work with people who are dying, but also as I think about my own dying process. 
We don't know what it'll be, Ned, but we can trust in awareness. We can trust that awareness will return. And awareness is not our thinking mind. It's not our capacity to be concentrated. It's an open, receptive, loving environment. You know, when <laughs> there's a wonderful English pediatrician, his name is Derek um, Winnicott, Donald Winnicott, sorry, Donald Winnicott. And uh, he coined this term, the holding environment. And he was a pediatrician, and so he watched what happened when infants, toddlers, when they were learning to walk. And sometimes, you know, they struggle and they fall down and they scratch their knee and, and the mom or the mothering person scoops up this child and holds them against their own body and in a way lends them their nervous system, you know. And um, it's a loving act. And what happens then is they put the child down and frequently what happens is the child can go further than they imagined, you know, because of this loving holding hmm. that they experienced. I think our awareness is a loving, holding environment. And we can rely on it. We can access it through the heart. You know, our minds will help us discern and discriminate and mm, help us sort, but our hearts are what tells us what is true. Yeah. And so imagine if we started our day or started our meditation practice by evoking this loving, holding environment to be our companion through our day or through our meditation practice or through any struggle that we might be experiencing. It's not some spiritual bypass. It's a very reliable, trustworthy, loving awareness. And um, it has served me for many decades, um, caring for people who are dying, being with my own suffering, almost dying many times myself, loving, holding environment. And I think that each of us have the capacity to know that. We can have confidence in our good hearts. They can be a trustworthy refuge for us. So may we all somehow discover that for ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I hope that something I've said or perhaps my presence has been of some small value to the people who are listening. I hope so. I'm grateful to you for having the courage to have the conversation and for the work that you do. Well, I hope that conversation with Frank Ostaseski offered you some of what you needed today. And if it did, think about sharing it with someone else who it might also mean something to. Uh, you know, word of mouth. Spread the word. Uh, I know that that conversation meant a lot to me. And here to talk about it with me and ask me more questions to really dive deep into what the experience was like is Nick Jana, the producer of You're Going to Die, the podcast. Hi, Nick. Hi, Ned. I heard Hi. some, I heard a lot of uh, moments of silent weeping on your end of this interview. Can you, <laughs> can you hear me crying? Well, there, there'll be this, you're usually really great about going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when, when there's a long period of silence during a touching story, then I know that that that's probably crying, and then there's like a little little 
little gasp for air or shudder or something. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Because I think, don't I even say to him at one point uh, that I was trying to be quiet and careful not to like sob and snot while he was telling <laughs> us in the middle of his stories? Yeah. Yeah, I had like three separate times or maybe even more where I just really let myself be in which i love i love that version of the conversations we're sharing with people that it's a chance for me to just drop in like me with someone else and just get what i need and be fully there and vulnerable and and raw and real and that with frank came with me just listening really well and when he tells his stories you can just feel it kind of move through you and yeah, I was really feeling the tears. And and actually leading up to that conversation, I was trying to find online for one of our workshops because I wanted to talk with the people in one of our grief workshops about crying and the preciousness of tears or the value. I wanted to find a poem or uh, a little piece about tears. And I didn't find anything that really hit in the way that I wanted it to. And then right after that search... I ended up having this conversation with Frank. And when I told him I didn't want, I was trying to not snot and sob on, on the mic while he was talking, he ended up just saying all the things about tears that I feel like I'd been seeking, you know, in the world. It was all just very perfect and coincidental. And yeah, um, you don't know this yet, but we're calling this episode, uh, our tears water a heart that's been too dry. Oh, which is something is that, he said that in right? that section. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> That's great. Do you feel like tears form, uh, uh, like what function does crying serve for you other than the obvious? Yeah. I'd like to answer that question in the context of you're going to die. And it's something, it's an answer that's been, informed even by some of our conversations one one in particular about the alchemy that you've talked about i think in a previous episode mm -hmm. of salt and water and mm -hmm. that that sort of physical alchemy um manifested and the transformation of it i think tears for me serve as an invitation to others for real vulnerability, a knowing of total softening. I think that all the way back to the open mics, that's how the tears work. And that's not to say I'm not, I'm not needing Frank to soften during a conversation like this, but I think when I'm facilitating and holding space, they emerge as that. And I think you've, you've heard me say this before, and I think I've maybe even said it on the podcast before, but and I say it often, but it's that measurement for the proximity of truth. And there's this way that I feel like it's got all of that to it for me, this crying. There's a lubrication of the spirit that's moving through me and through others when mm -hmm. those tears come. And uh, also kind of a declaration, too, of something that's occurring that's needed and an okayness about it. Like even to the point that I think I've gotten better over the years at crying while I need to keep talking 
to let people know that it's something that can be happening and nothing stopped, like everything can move still and that there's something okay more than usual. Although there's something to be said too for someone who's so overwhelmed with tears that things do need to stop and things need to get quiet and silent. I think when I cry, especially in the event spaces and the workshops and the open mics, it's, it's a, it's a, a declaration or a sign that something's moving and happening that's needed and it's still happening and is needed. It can move through it. Like I can keep talking. We can keep like leaning in and going with the momentum. Um, even if the tears are a measurement for that momentum occurring, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I feel like when you do it, it's kind of like a line in this drawing a line in the sand. Oh yeah. You, in the yeah, opposite way that, that in the opposite way that you would normally do in a fight where you're like, <laughs> come here if you want to, you know, yeah. get punched. It's like cross this line if you're willing to be as vulnerable as this. Not not like it's a dare, but like it's a invitation, totally. yeah, which totally. is just a, a really wonderful thing. And, and Frank talks about leading with vulnerability in his interactions with uh, grieving and dying patients and yeah. not forgetting that. And it just seems like a beacon of vulnerability like a signal of this is me in the clearest way i can show you um that i'm vulnerable and i'm listening yeah that really resonated with me him speaking to that and and so yeah and then that's true too for me especially with individuals it is like a little flag that i'm putting in the ground or a line maybe, but like more like a flag of this kind of, this is a sign that I'm here and that you're affecting me and that you matter and what you're sharing matters and our relationship deepens because of that wet, you know, salty flag. <laughs> a flag of tears. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the title. <laughs> Changing the title. One of these days I'm going to get a title out of my words oh. it makes sense to use the guests but i can't wait <laughs> for that one day could we do an episode where we do an edit of me interviewing myself for 30 minutes just a back and forth of <laughs> or where you interview somebody but like you, it's clear that you're really trying to say something every that's title time. worthy every time well yeah. isn't that a horse on a ship of a bold blue damn it <laughs> yes i'm gonna try thanks all of you for listening again you know, if this episode and the podcast in general has been doing something good to you, send it out to someone. We just say, just choose one, shoot a text out, say, hey, check this out. I think you'll like it. Um, if this is the first episode you've listened to, welcome to the podcast. Check out our past episodes, a lot of great guests and a lot of good guests to come. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Glad you were here. Good to be in your ears. And until next time. Bye, Nick. You saying goodbye to me? Yeah, that's your name. <laughs> oh, I thought you are talking oh, to no, the listeners. No, I want to be like, I was going to be like, bye, Nick. And then I was going to go back to them and be like, and bye, every one of you as well who are listening and aren't Sorry. the producer. Here, let me try, let me try again. <laughs> we do a lot of try agains. What like a year long of uh, a season uh, of a year, and then we'll start to really not have to redo things like this. But um, bye, Nick. Bye, Ned. And bye, all of you who are not the producer. <laughs> smooth.